Good morning. Good morning, good morning. This is uh, part of our little ukulele, ukulele string band that was meeting every Sunday. We're kind of on hiatus for every Sunday now, but we still like to play in church once in a while. So we have some songs that uh, you might enjoy jumping in and singing along. A few of them have the words in the order of service. This first one does not, but it's a famous Cat Stevens song, Moon Shadow. So jump in on the chorus. next one is a song by Dave Carter and Tracy Grammer, so it won't be quite as familiar. It's called The Gentle Arms of Eden. Joy as thou to say, this is 
Next one is definitely a sing-along, Well May the World Go by Pete Seeger. Well may the world go, the world go, the world go. Well may the world go when I'm far away. And then we're going to shift into Spanish. Cuando yo me vaya, que vaya bien el mundo. Cuando yo me vaya, que el mundo bien esté. But you'll get several chances to sing both choruses, so jump in on those words. Yes. 
Our theme song. <laughs> Already, the sunflowers and squash are scattering seeds. They're turning their attention underground. Come, they say to us, follow the shortening days into dark. Welcome the autumn. Pause at the threshold where the veil thins between living and dead and the ancestors speak. Trust the turning. Trust the long nights dreaming. Trust that all that you need for tomorrow is waiting within and among. Come, let us worship together. This is a beautiful autumn hymn. I walk the unfrequented road with open eye and ear.
Hello, you may be seated. Welcome to this blessed sanctuary full of good omens. I'm Iris, at least I have been the last four months. <laughs> what would I do without this space, without a soft place to land when October glides across the room of the year and says, here, it's time to let go. Let go. Let this place, like a big pile of leaves, for the new person in the back, <laughs> the little ones down here, getting on their feet. We learn to let go again. We remember the spirit holds us the whole way down. We read a poem last week about imagining a world in which we win. Now, we, the question of we might be something to discuss a little bit later, but what does winning look like? Winning at church, like some kind of sport? Well, there is no right way to church except for the way that lets everyone who might be you church. Whether it's by amplifying audio, by having space to get up, to move around, to stim. Do you need to scribble notes? Do you need to fidget? Are you ready to have the person down the row respond in some way you didn't expect? What if someone moans or a chair gets knocked out of the place? Do we need things to go as expected or be safe for them to go how they need to? Is there space for the holy queerit to move? Parents and other caregivers, Sometimes it's enough just to get here, was today. We hold space for you and decisions you need to make regarding the expected and unexpected things children do. We provide actual space to hopefully make the unsure moments more solid. A playground up front with soft playthings, an art table at the back with things to color on and color with, and a family room across the hall where play noise is not the same problem. A cozy, soundproof, toy stocked den with a live feed of the sanctuary, but where you and fellow parents can finally let loose. Oh, there is one more person I forgot to welcome. Yes, welcome back, Reverend Bob LaValle. Thank you. 
Welcome back from a four-month sabbatical, which we are so glad you got to take. Because sabbaticals are an essential part of a healthy and fruitful ministry. They give ministers a chance to step away from the endless demands and deadlines and vicissitudes of congregational life. So I've gotten just like the tiniest debrief from you so far. I know Bob has gotten to go on some journeys and spend some time in spiritual practice. You've done some learning and hopefully you've gotten a lot of rest. There was many a nap. Many naps. <laughs> we hope your sabbatical was everything you needed it to be and we look forward to hearing about some of it. So here is today's sermon and my keys to the church and I'm clocking out. See you later. Uh, what? <laughs> This is only my second day. <laughs> Not ready for that yet, Angela, sorry. <laughs> I guess that's true. <laughs> All right, I probably will take some vacation soon, but not just yet. <laughs> it's good to see you. And since our Director of Religious Education, Mia Noren, is out sick today, and we hope she gets well soon, Bob, why don't you go ahead and lead us in meditation and prayer? All right, push in Angela's bench before standing in front of, everything feels new. I am, um, like, let's say, let's be sure to send some prayers and good energy towards Mia and wish her a warm recovery, an easy recovery and get her back real soon. And uh, it's, it's quite emotional to feel the love of this congregation as I come back and I'm so grateful for the generosity that allows me to take leave. But, but anyways, now is a moment for meditating. So I invite you to find a meditative position for your body today. Everybody's different. So you might like putting your feet on the floor, or you might like resting your hands somewhere, or not. Maybe lengthening your spine, maybe drawing your shoulders up to your ears, and then letting them soften down, whatever it is for your body today, because all bodies are sacred. As I yelled repeatedly during the pride parade, all bodies are sacred, all love is holy. And let's move into meditation space. Let's center ourselves with the rhythm of the seasons. We're moving into fall, as Ira said. When trees begin dropping their leaves, perennials turn brown and dry. Seems like all of nature begins turning inward, drawing its energy inward and down into the earth. In that spirit, we draw into our cores, considering our true natures as we grow still and quiet. And let's turn our attention to our breath. We're not trying to control it. We're simply being a witness to the natural rhythm of our breath. Let's breathe quietly together for a few moments.
none of us journeys alone through the world. May feel like it sometimes, but we don't. We all carry with us the people and the places that we love, that we worry about, that we hope the best for. So at the sound of the chime, I invite you, everyone here, to speak the names of the people and places that are carried in your heart today into our shared sanctuary. All these we lift up to the great powers of healing and renewal known by many names. Can we join our hearts in prayer? In the midst of a changing climate, we remember the guidance of journalist Laura Paskus, who reminds us that we must stay close to nature as it changes. May we cherish what we have now and act to preserve it for the future. We lift our voices in lamentation as we witness the horrific events in Israel and Palestine. As we grieve, may we strive to consider our thoughts and words with humility and compassion, acknowledging the pain and injury Endured by, endured by people who are far away from the decision makers, but very close to the impacts. May there be peace and a lasting solution. We give thanks for times of rest and renewal, for sleeping in, for naps, for long weekends and vacations, and yes, for sabbaticals. May we all, all of us, enjoy an opportunity to pause and reflect, to collect our energies, and to return to life refreshed. And may love be at the center of everything that we do. Peace be with you. You might as well do something fun. So this is a song from the Scooby-Doo movie called Things That Go Bump in the Night. <laughs> Spellbound. How 
and who's It's very Scooby-Doo. You hear a shriek in the house. You know it's freaking me out. They're out to get you, to capture you, make you spellbound. Howling and prowling, you're shivering, quivering, spellbound. You cannot run. You cannot hide. Yeah, you gotta face it, baby. Go bump in the night. Wherever you run, wherever you hide. Yeah, you gotta face it, baby. Go bump, bump, bump in the night. You things that go bump, a bump in the night. Rut row. <laughs> it was a spicy sermon signboard these last few weeks out there on the corner of Carlisle and Comanche. We had the Salem witch trials, and then how to cast a spell, and then demons. And you know, we have this uh, old three-sided signboard out there. It has really heavy plexiglass panels that have to be lifted and then propped up by the volunteer sign changers who then have to somehow like manually swap out the letters for the sermon title and may it be short and the name of the preacher right <laughs> so it's really physically challenging and it's a time-consuming task there are a lot of letters and in my name there are a lot of r's which is why sometimes my name is spelled herrera and sometimes it's spelled herrera but I'm flipped, <laughs> right? I don't blame them. <laughs> a few weeks ago, we had to stop using one of the three sides because the panel's frame got bent and it became dangerous to try to lift it up and prop it and do all of that because it could just fall straight down on the volunteer's head. And then, yes, <laughs> Iris, <laughs> Iris has experienced this firsthand. And then this week, a second panel came unhinged. It literally just popped off, and it can no longer go back on. So we had to stop using that side, too. Is this like some kind of intervention or something? <laughs> Should I be worried? If the last side breaks, we're not going to be able to promote our subversive UU sermon titles anymore. 
least not until we get a new sign. So today, instead of saying demons, 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 it just says demons. <laughs> Maybe it's a bad idea to say it three times fast like that. <laughs> well, interestingly, the Greek word from which the word demons comes means a lot of different things, and mostly not what you would expect at all. Demon comes from daimon, which means, according to the Greek-English lexicon, one, a god or goddess. Two, fate, destiny, fortune, good or bad. Three, one's genius. Or four, a name given to the souls of men of the golden age who formed the connecting link between gods and men. There's a story there. Yes, I have a Greek-English lexicon from back when I was in divinity school and was top of the class in biblical Greek. It was pretty dusty. <laughs> I have to say I have not translated the Bible as much as I imagined I would back then. A couple of years ago on the first date with the person who is now my partner, I noticed a Greek phrase tattooed just below her collarbone. Ethos anthropodaimon a quote from the 6th century philosopher, 6th century BCE philosopher Heraclitus. It means a person's character is their destiny, or their divinity, or their fate. Daimon, meaning all of those things. She has a degree in philosophy and had pulled up in a muscle car, and this tattoo was so daring and so nerdy. <laughs> but I digress. She, let's see, a, a god or a goddess, fate, destiny, genius, intermediary. In the ancient Greek world, that was about it. A daimon could be capricious. It might cause trouble. It might need to be appeased with a sacrifice of some kind. A daimon might also possess a person causing some havoc, but they weren't evil. Today, the English dictionary definition of demon is likely to say something like malevolent spiritual or supernatural entities, malevolent supernatural entities. And that contemporary Greek lexicon I have also includes a fifth meaning, an evil spirit or devil. So what changed? The historian Elaine Pagels, along with other Bible scholars, <clears throat> points out that while angels often appear in the Hebrew Bible, Satan, along with other fallen angels or demonic beings, is virtually absent from that text. But among certain first century Jewish groups, including the followers of Jesus, the figure variously called Satan, Beelzebub, or Belial began to take on central importance. The Gospel of Mark, which was written in the first century, barely mentions angels, but it describes Jesus' ministry as a struggle between God and demons. Mark chapter 3, verse 24 indicates that demons belong to Satan's kingdom. Two of the other three Gospels, Matthew and Luke, use Mark as their basis, and they expand on it. One thing that's important to note about Mark is that it was written in a context of war or the immediate destruction resulting from war. So people in that time were very polarized, and the stakes were very high. Good versus evil rhetoric made emotional and rhetorical sense. 
for Jesus' followers, he represented good, and his opponents represented evil. And both sides were Jewish back then. But when Jesus became Christ in the minds of his followers, and they became Christians instead of Jews, there began a very destructive trajectory of demonizing Jews and heretics and pagans and, and, and. In the Hebrew scriptures, the idea of Satan is different. The word translated as Satan is an adversary, but not necessarily a bad one. The adversary is a figure who blocks a path. If the path is a good one, being blocked is a bad thing. But if the path is a bad one, being blocked might be a good thing, right? We want to be blocked from a bad path, or at least it's in our best interest to be. So that word, Satan, or adversary, wasn't necessarily bad until those first century writers started thinking of it differently. In the book of Numbers, which is the fourth book in the Hebrew Bible, we find the story of Balaam. Balaam saddled up his donkey and started down a path that God did not want for him. So, quote, an angel of the Lord took his stand in the road as Balaam's adversary, his Satan, it's that word. When Balaam's donkey sees the angel there, she turns off to the side, and Balaam strikes her with his stick to try to get her to do what he wants. And then she turns to the other side, and he does it again. And finally, she lies down on the ground beneath him, and he strikes her once more. At that point, the text says, God opens the donkey's mouth, and the donkey says to Balaam, what have I done to you that you have struck me three times? You forgot there was a talking donkey in the Bible. <laughs> I know, I am always surprised all over again to find it in there. Over the generations, the idea of demons has continued to evolve. I once heard a religious historian say that the history of God is, in some ways, a history of humankind's perception of itself. And I think it was Karen Armstrong who said this in an interview. She's the author of the book, A History of God, in which she traces the concept of God as it develops in Judaism, Christianity, and Islam through those, the sacred texts of those traditions. In the stories about God, written down by humans, God is concerned with humans, right? The stories are about God's perception of us. But since they're written by humans, they are, if you think about it, humankind's perception of itself. And I think something similar could be said about demons, that by being about the things they are about, about fate and destiny and the things that block our paths and even evil, what they're about is our relationship, our own relationship with those things as humans. They're about the kinds of things that can block our good paths. External things, the demons of systemic oppression, of climate destruction, things like that. And they're about internal things, right? Our own beliefs that aren't good for us, our frameworks and the stories we tell ourselves to make sense of what's happening, but stories that aren't helping us, that aren't serving us or our wholeness. They're about our unhealed trauma those internal things, about our pain and the seduction of anger, about our impatience and the seduction of numbness, about black and white either-or thinking. And what tends to be true is that the wiser we grow, 
the wiser we become spiritually, the more we realize the importance of allowing ourselves to experience complex feelings and to be able to hold truths that can be in tension with one another. Last Saturday, the rabbi Sharon Browse gave a sermon at ICAR, the post-denominational synagogue in Los Angeles where she serves as senior pastor, senior rabbi. I'm a pastor, she's a rabbi. It, that day it had been one week since the terrorist attack in Israel. And Sharon Browse has done a lot of public speaking over the years beyond the synagogue. She even gave an interview on NPR with an imam last week. Rabbi Browse is a well-known progressive activist. She's been a very vocal critic of the increasingly extreme Israeli government and of the occupation, as are many, many Israelis. And remember, Israelis have been protesting in masses in the streets for months before this. And like many Israelis and many UUs, and as am I, she has been concerned about the suffering of Palestinian people. On October 7th, on Simchat Torah, a celebratory high holy day in Jerusalem, first came the massacre by Hamas and the profound grief and shock. The shock at seeing babies and children and grandmothers and Holocaust survivors and altogether 1,400 people in Israel violated and murdered and 200 abducted with no possibility of escape in sight the single largest day, single day massacre of Jews since the Holocaust, right? The largest single day massacre. And then, she says, then came the pain of others' response to that attack. Rabbi Braus said, quote, this week I read statements from longtime allies that shock the conscience. Some so implausible that I had to reread them multiple times to make sure they weren't farce or satire. In these statements was not only a failure to condemn the atrocities against innocence, but proud support for Hamas. This week we entered the upside down world when a retrograde, totalitarian, misogynistic terror regime became, for the time being, the hero of the left. How could it be, she asked. She continued, to justify barbarity in the service of decolonization and the liberation of Palestine requires more than an ideological commitment to Palestinian freedom. It demands mental and emotional contortions that render a person fundamentally unable to see the humanity of a Jew. It requires a deeply internalized association with Jews and power, the Jew as the oppressor, the Jew as victimizer, so much so that even a horrific terror attack, even teenagers and elders being carted naked through Gaza does not evoke a gasp of horror or a tear. What I wanna lift up in this moment is that Jewish you use and our Jewish neighbors right here in Albuquerque are also suffering greatly and are finding themselves devastatingly isolated. Long-time allies remaining silent in the face of their profound grief. 
And in case you think I'm about to demonize anyone, no. That's not what this sermon is about. And it's not what Rabbi Brow's sermon was about either. Bob and I are going to preach together in a few weeks about Israel and, Palestine, and Gaza, Israel and Palestine, about the humanity of Israelis and the humanity of Palestinians, and about how our UU faith can guide us in understanding what is happening on a historical and moral and humanitarian level. So today is not about all of that. It's really about what Rabbi Brous said next in this message. She urged her congregation to turn to each other, to notice those who have reached out, and she asked them to promise that this feeling of isolation and loneliness, the yearning for solidarity, will remind us, she said, of the sacred responsibility to step closer rather than to hide, equivocate, and retreat ourselves when another people is suffering. She asked them to make that promise. Although they've been excluded by the narrow scope of others' moral concerns, she said, they must not narrow the scope of their own concern. Ethos anthropo daimon. That is such an important message for all of us, right? On the good path, we must be alert for the presence of the adversary, that fault that inferior way of thinking which would lead us astray. Whether that is the path of liberation for our own people or another people or both, and whether even it is a more personal path. And we must remember to turn toward one another, turn toward each other's humanity in times of peace and especially in times of war. May it be so. Me and talk, talking donkeys in this church go way back. <laughs> Thanks for blocking that path. <laughs> they, they say the demons are, I mean, the devil is in the details. No, I think... I think the other thing is in the details. The Unitarian higher power thing, spirit of life, that's what holds us. That's what brings us together. That's what knits us together, knits together our hours and days and weeks into shared purpose. And a lot of that spirit of our lives is manifest as financial and material resources and gifts. Donations are connected to missions, actions, connected to words, lifetimes, connected to Sunday mornings. Our Change for the Future recipient this month is Coalition to Stop Violence Against Native Women. This organization's mission is to stop violence against Native women and children by advocating for social change and providing support to other Native advocates. 
you may mark the envelope in the seat back uh, CFF or drop loose change in the basket to make donations. We will now take the offering. What is generously given is received with gratitude. And thank you on behalf of this church and thank you on behalf of the Coalition to Stop Violence Against Native Women. We got some invitations to share. First from Caitlin Anderson, 21 year member of First Unitarian and serving on the Radical Generosity Committee. Do I hear some? See something over my shoulder. <laughs> oh, okay, I'll try that again. Okay, Caitlin. Caitlin, where are you? Uh, has, anyone seen her? has anyone seen her? Uh, okay, okay. We can come back to Caitlin. And did you want to? Right. So, Caitlin was going to tell you about why this church is so important to you, to her rather, 
And uh, if you can get that up, we'll, we'll just stop what we're doing and, and show it too. So, But in the meantime, I do want to say uh, the pledge campaign is underway. As of Thursday, we have 116 pledges for a, a little more than $320,000. We're a little behind where we were last year. No need to panic. But people do need to get their pledges in so we can do our, or, our organize our, oh, are we there? Oh, we're there. We, people need to get their pledges in so we can plan appropriately for next year. So, but let's hear Caitlin talk about it. Morning. Red Jen asked me to speak this morning and I said yes. And then I thought about it and said no. You see, I'm living with a chronic illness that's progressive, uh, multiple sclerosis, and mornings are hard. I can't get out of bed. The energy it takes to get a shower, to get dressed, to get in the car, to get my rollator, drive across town and walk into church is just hard. Uh, so I'm here another way and that's one of the advantages that I just love about our church is technology. Well, it started during COVID, we had Zoom worship and we still do because there's a lot of us that just can't make it and really appreciate that option. We also did Zoom Covenant, which let me stay connected to a group that I adore and is meaningful to me spiritually and helpful to me in many ways. We also have Zoom committee meetings, which let me participate even on days I can't get out of the house. And I really appreciate that. There's so many other things I love about the church. I could do a David Letterman's top 10, uh, but I won't. Um, but I think the first thing is that, I guess the best story is when we moved here, we were at church less than 12 hours later and knew it was going to be our church home. And it still is. Even if you don't see me around campus, know that in my heart, this is my church home. Why am I here today? Uh, to tell you to pledge, please. We need to support this church. We need to support our ministers, our staff, our technology folks and all the things it takes to make church happen. And the best thing about technology is you can pledge online. It's easy, you just click. And that's an advantage for people like me who might be stuck in bed. And you know, if I had to write a check every month, I'd have to first find my checkbook, then find an envelope, then a stamp, write the check, walk to the mailbox, which usually means getting in my wheelchair, going to the mailbox, and instead, the best thing is you can make a pledge that's withdrawn from your checking account or your credit card once a month. Don't worry about it. Put it on autopilot. Can you imagine what it would be like for our own budgets if we only got paid once a year? The church needs you to be able to pay monthly so we can figure out our budget monthly and continue to operate. If you haven't pledged yet, and we are so thankful that so many of you have, if you haven't pledged yet, please go home today and do so. Do it by technology, in your phone, in the on your phone, in the car. Go home, click on the button, make it automatic. They'll withdraw the money from your checking account or your credit card, but we really need you to pledge because otherwise church wouldn't be here and technology wouldn't be here and I couldn't be here with you today. Thank you and please support our church.